Pepper had a really close friendship that ended, and you didn't really know why. I mean, there's a lot of reasons for a friendship or a relationship to change or to end. You do or say something harsh or unkind. They do something foolish. Um, and the, something happens to the friendship, and it's just not the same as it was. Um, or uh, maybe for reason of distance, you guys end up in different places, and so you don't see each other as much. Or um, maybe... Um, other friendships take priority for them. These are some of the things that we observe in our human earthly relationships. And while they're not always good, they tend to make sense as to why a particular friendship changed. But what about if it's not your fault, if there's no good explanation for why that relationship seems to have changed? try to communicate with that person, they don't call you back, they don't text you back, they don't return your emails or your letters, what then? You start wondering, what did I do wrong, or what's wrong with that person, or a variety of different things. And in the psalm that we're going to look at tonight, uh, we see some of those ideas at work. It starts out, and it sounds like it's going to be a psalm of praise to God, rejoicing in God's work, because it starts out and it says, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, then you planted them, you afflicted the peoples, then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. We remember the stories that our fathers and grandfathers told us about being delivered from Egypt with mighty miracles, the plagues coming upon our enemies, and us being sustained in the wilderness and arriving in the promised land. And it was everything that you had promised and more. And we realized that it was your hand that upheld us and made all that happen. So we look back and we say, God, you've been with us, those, especially with those who came before us. You looked after us. We rejoice in those things. And then there's this expectation that God's going to do the same thing again. You're my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. And God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Picture people who are going into battle and, and they're not sure if that is, if it's going to be a day of victory or a day of defeat. And then someone comes and gives a stirring speech and, and rouses the troops and they're going to win, they're going to overcome their enemies, they're going to succeed. And then all of a sudden the tone changes. Verse 9 You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor. And do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten, and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, and have not profited by their sale. 
You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. So, verse 9, what had God done? Verse 9. What's that? He had rejected them. What's that? Okay. And what was the result of that in verse 10 and 11? Okay. Which meant that in their battles, what happened? They lost their battles. Losing their battles meant they would lose what else? Okay, possessions, land, what else? Their lives, okay. Sheep to be eaten as uh, they, were, they lost their lives. Uh, verse 12 uh, is an interesting expression. You sell your people cheaply and have not profited by their sale. What, what do you think he means by that? What's that? Okay. Yeah, it, it's almost as though, you know, if you were, and I'm not condoning this, but in their culture, if you were to be, uh, think about Joseph's brothers, what they did. They, get, they made some money off of selling him, right? Um, but in this case, it was almost like God gave them away in the battle and didn't get anything for having done so. Not only was there loss of many things like their homes, their possessions, even their lives, whether by death or by slavery. What does verse 13 say and 14? What did they lose? They lost respect or honor. It says they were a reproach to the neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. I mean, um... We probably don't have a good frame of reference for what this would be like. I mean, there are there are reasons that we might look down on people around us, but they would tend to have to do with like like laziness on their part, like if they let junk pile up all around their house or something like that. Um, but in this case, it was not something that they had caused. It was almost like. There's the people had a reason to say, my false god has defeated your god that you say is the true god, and so we're going to mock you about that, that kind of idea. And was this something that was over and done with? What do you think, according to verse 16? Yeah, I mean, it, it almost reminds you of times in the book of Judges when they were oppressed by various enemies and those enemies stayed in the land and ruled over them for long periods of time, right? There's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about the exact time to which this is referring. And I think it's intentionally vague uh, so that it has a broader application. I think there's possibly a good argument to be made that it would have been earlier in Israel's history 
before the uh, Babylonian or the Assyrian captivities um, because it's not those sorts of things being described. And I'll say why in a moment. And it would have been after God had led them out from Egypt because there's that reference to God's great works in the lives of the people. So if we had to put like a time frame on it, it would be after the Exodus and probably before the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. So we see a situation like this. God was with his people in the past. God's not with his people right now, at least for every indication we look at. What are some possible reasons that God might turn away from his people? They disobeyed. Okay? What else? Okay. So, if we kind of group those under sin on their part, what, what are some other, maybe not biblical reasons, but reasons people might give? Okay. Okay. And and that's probably oh, that that's getting close to where we'll land, but I mean if you were in the midst of this situation, I'm sure you'd probably be thinking, you know, where's God? And the one that Paul raised, look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. So that's part of why I think people would say it's not after the Babylonian captivity because they had pretty clearly by that point forgotten God, gone their own way, abandoned the covenant. Verse 18, Our heart is not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your way, yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. And that kind of causes a problem for us. If evil has come upon them that they don't deserve how do we explain that if God brings calamity into the life of someone who is faithfully serving him how do we deal with that how do we answer it in our own hearts and minds when people say hey is there something you could have done differently how, how do you answer those sorts of questions Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. So what's our answer to these issues that are being raised? Yes? Is it, is it ever right for someone who is a sinner to protest their innocence to God? 
Is it ever right for someone who's a sinner to protest to God, I'm innocent, in the face of a situation like this? Luis? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, Job came very close toward the end of the book of accusing God of doing wrong, and that's when I think God corrects him and, and goes through all those things in the later chapters of the book of Job. But, I think at a, at a basic level, saying to God, I know I'm a sinner, but there's not any specific sin that I'm aware of in this particular instance that should lead to this thing that's going on in my life right now. And that's, I think, what, what the psalmist is saying here on behalf of the people. We have not forgotten you. We have not dealt falsely. Our heart has not turned back. And our steps have not deviated. And then the, the if statement in verse 20 and following, if we had forgotten God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? The way that is, the question is being phrased is, in the English translation it makes it sound like God would catch us at it, but uh, there's a possibility of translating in such a way that God would make it known to us, like that kind of an idea. And so... Um, kind of the attitude where it says at the end of one of the Psalms, search my heart and see if there is any wicked way in me. Someone can come before God with that sort of an attitude and say, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a specific sin that I have committed that justifies what is going on in my life. Think about the example of Job. Job sacrificed regularly. Job taught his children about God. Job was a testimony to the people around him. But God brought disaster into his life. Loss of his riches, loss of his family. Almost seemed like he was on the verge of losing his wife. She almost was encouraging him to blaspheme God and, and just get it over with. Um, and Job had not specifically done anything that would justify those circumstances from a you did this, this is the consequence kind of understanding of life. So what about the exceptions to you reap what you sow? What if you reap what you didn't sow? And I think, um, as we've alluded to already in some of the comments that you've made, um, I think some of the people who've looked at this chapter and thought a lot about it, I think as we read through it, I think some of the important phrases to note are we have not forgotten you. There's an acknowledgement that it's not the fault of God's people in this specific instance. Laying alongside that recognition that it is God's hand. Because the easy out would be, it's my fault, so I deserve it. Or, it happened and God couldn't do anything about it. But this passage doesn't leave room for either of those two options. They hadn't specifically sinned, and God was clearly the, the one that was causing this. Verse 9, you have rejected us. You cause us to turn back. You give us as sheep to be eaten. You sell your people cheaply. You have crushed us, verse 19, in a place of jackals. Okay? So God knows that they haven't sinned. God is the reason for the disaster that has come into their lives. And then we see... 
a, an expression in verse 22. It says, For your sake we are killed all day long. So something about the plan and purpose of God is the key to understanding why this is taking place. Not that we can fully explain it, but we can point verse 22 and say, it is for God's sake and sometimes the mysterious workings of His purpose that is the reason for this circumstance. And God's purpose and God's promises is the thing to which they appeal at the end of the chapter, verse 26. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. So if you find yourself in this situation, I have not sinned, God has brought disaster or calamity in my life, the first step we should say is, have I sinned? And repent of that sin. But if we examine ourselves and we say, God, I don't know of anything, do we have the out of saying, this has nothing to do with God, it just sort of happened. No, because God rules over everything. So then we come here and we say, well, if God rules over everything, God's purpose is behind this circumstance, what's the next step? There's a variety of places that we could go. Be angry at God, um, lose our testimony, so to speak, to the world that's watching our lives. But the recourse that the psalmist goes to is appeal to God on the basis of His promises and look back at how God has behaved in the past. God, you have behaved this way in the past and given us victory and all those sorts of things. God, you have a relationship with us as your people. Out of that foundation, basis, set of reasons, there's a case to be made for an appeal to God saying, deliver us, help us. Does that mean an immediate deliverance from that circumstance? No. But this, I think, lays out for us an appropriate response to circumstances of trial, of oppression, of difficulty that we do not, humanly speaking, deserve and that God, in His sovereign purpose, has brought into our lives. One of the other things that one of the commentaries I was reading brought out was the fact that this verse, verse 22, is quoted in, in uh, Romans 8. So turn there with me if you would. You know the context of Romans 8, the adoption of God, the intercession of the Spirit, the reality of the groaning and suffering in a world that's broken. And we'll start in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but delivered him over for us all, 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this passage set alongside Psalm 44 raises questions for us. Do you belong to God? Because if you are not one of God's people, where it says God causes things to work together for good, it says to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. So if you've never turned from your sins and trusted in Christ the way that that verse talks about, you cannot claim as a promise that God will help you even in the midst of these circumstances. Furthermore, I think we read Romans 8 and we think tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword, and we think those are all things that other human beings do to us, so they just sort of come into our life and they happen, and we wouldn't come out and say God has nothing to do with those things, but if we recognize the context of Psalm 44 and verse 22 and the way it's quoted right after verse 35 of Romans 8, I think we have to recognize God is in all of those things. God was the one who brought persecution on the early church. God was the one who brought distress and famine and peril and sword to Paul. I say, well, is God a good God then? We have to be very careful in the way that we phrase our understanding of God's sovereignty in the light of the evil that is in this world. We have to recognize that we cannot say that evil is good, because sometimes that's what people try to say. They're like, you know, someone did this horrible thing to you. Well, it's okay, because God's in charge of everything. And I think that we can acknowledge that something is a wicked, evil action by a person, or something is a, an incomprehensible trial that comes into your life, and that that is not in and of itself a good thing. But I think we can recognize that God can triumph over and through every circumstance of life to accomplish the purposes that he is seeking to work in our lives. And you say, well, that sounds like the end justifies the means. And my response would be this. The end never justifies the means for us because we don't know the end and we can't control the end. But God uses a variety of means to accomplish his end because he's the one ruling over all of it and the one who has the power to turn it to good even when it is not good. So am I saying God uses, God's ends justify his means? I'm not sure if I would quite phrase it like that, but there is a sense in which God, because of his knowledge and his power and his being God, can work in situations in ways that you and I can't. So what's our responsibility in these sorts of circumstances? 
It's to examine what do I believe about God? Do I remember what God has done for me in the past or for his people in the past? How am I going to know what God has done for me or for people in the past? I need to read about it in the Bible. I need to think about it regularly. I need to be make it a practice to share how God is working in my life with people around me. Not necessarily every last detail. I mean, there's probably a little bit of a difference between I lost my keys and I prayed and God helped me to find my keys and that was a good thing. And praise God for that. But do we, but do we tell God... Uh, tell others about how God has worked in, in, in even more important circumstances in our lives? Is that a regular practice of ours? Because if we're not reflecting on what God has done for other people and what God has done for me, then when something like this comes up, I'm not probably going to be having that as a foundation for my response. There also has to be an assurance going into any kind of trial that it is a God who is at work in that trial. Sometimes people want to say things like, it'll all be okay, or um, these things just kind of happen, and they want to take it out of God's hand and into man's ability to fix things that can't be fixed, or trite expressions that make it sound like everything's okay, ignoring the fact that they can't fix it and that God is the one who is at work in it, not random chance, not some sort of blind force working out karma in the universe or whatever else. It's God that's at work in it. So we need to have that idea, that truth firmly fixed in our minds. God does it. Be living in a way where we're confessing our sin and turning away from our sins. So like the psalmist, we can say, God, there is no immediate reason that is should be the cause of this trial in my life but you brought it into my life so help me to respond rightly in it deliver me by your power and what does that deliverance look like well think back to what it says in Romans 8 can tribulation persecution famine nakedness peril or sword separate us from Christ's love Verse 38, can death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any other created thing separate us from the love of God? So what is God's path of deliverance? God's path of deliverance sometimes looks like closing the lion's mouths and preserving Daniel's life. Sometimes it looks like Paul's beaten and left for dead and God potentially raises him from the dead and sets him on his course to preach longer. Sometimes it looks like early Christians who were martyred in the arena and died for the name of Christ. Is your experience going to be like one of those? I, I can't answer that for you. Only God knows. But we have a basis to appeal to God and say, I'm following you. You're at work in my life. Deliver me. And so when we consider these truths, are we convinced of them are we thinking about them before we get into a circumstance of difficulty so we're not caught off guard and unsure how to respond? Are we coming alongside other believers who are facing these sorts of difficulties in a 2 Corinthians 1 sort of way and saying, God comforted me here, he can comfort you here, what happened to me here is different from what happened to you. 
you broke your leg, you're not going to walk again, you know, whatever, it doesn't have to be a one for one, my trial is exactly the same as your trial. The thing that is the common ground is the God who ministers to us in the trial, that's what we're pointing people to, not the specific circumstances that we experience. And so Psalm 44 starts out and it says, God has been there in the past. It comes to the middle part and it says, it looks like God's not here now. And it ends with, but God, because you were there in the past, because it's your hand that's doing all these things, because I belong to you, because I'm trying to faithfully follow you, I'm going to appeal to you and expect that there will be a day of deliverance coming. It may be near, it may be far, it may be in this life, it may be in your presence, but God, you are the same sort of God, whether you give the victory over the enemies of your people in a glorious and majestic way, or whether you bring your people into a time of difficulty that tests their faith and causes them to say, do I really believe in you, God? A psalm like this helps us to see these ideas and bring them together and say, is that really what I believe? And hopefully it is. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know exactly what's going on in everyone heart, everyone's heart and mind right now. I do know some things that are going on in people's hearts and minds right now or in the experience of their lives, whether it be breaks in family relationships, whether it be sickness and, and uh, difficulty in that way, whether it be um, just different things in their past that... Uh, Maybe we don't all even know about, Lord, but you know our hearts, our minds, our lives. You know the difficulties that you have brought into our lives. You know that, hopefully, I believe this is the case, all of us in here would profess that we know you. And so if we are your people, and you've brought difficulty into our lives, help us to call out to you as our God, and ask you to work in and through that difficulty to deliver us in the way that you have planned for our lives, to honor yourself in it and to accomplish good for us through it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.